0: You are listening to a sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee, the historic church of Robert Murray McShane. For more sermon content, please visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk. Now, our scripture reading is from the New Testament, from Paul's letter to the Romans, chapter 8. And we're going to read from verse 28 to the end of the chapter, if you're using the church Bible the passage is, I think, on page 1135, Romans chapter 8, and beginning to read at verse 28. Paul says, we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say in response to this? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own Son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who is he that condemns? Christ Jesus, who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. I guess if we were to take a poll of Christians, then Romans chapter 8 and especially these last verses would probably come in the top ten of favorite Bible passages, perhaps even in the top five, who knows, uh, even in the top three. And I think they probably are favorite verses of so many Christians uh, because here Paul, on the one hand, scales the heights of gospel eloquence. Uh, These words have a poetic ring to them and not everything the apostle Paul wrote obviously had a poetic ring to it remember how peter says there are some things in paul's letters that are difficult to understand but the the music and the rhythm of these words make the message clear the gospel gives christian people marvelous assurance and confidence and uh, in a sense paul seems to be standing on the top of a gospel uh, Himalaya and proclaiming to the whole world that he is sure that nothing will ever be able to separate him from the love of God in Christ Jesus his Lord. Some of you, I'm sure, who have young children have one of those children at the stage, perhaps even just now, where Whenever you make some strong assertion, they say, Why? Uh, Perhaps some of you have teenagers, perhaps some of you are teenagers who do exactly the same thing. You are wired to irritate others by asking the question, Why? Uh, One of our children who had that particular instinct from some part of the family line, I'm not sure which part. I noticed whenever I began to answer the question, uh, he would relax and, and breathe quietly. He wasn't so interested in my answer as long as somebody knew that there was an answer. And people like that can become very irritating. But, you know, in a sense, you need a kind of Jiminy Cricket sitting on your shoulder when you are reading Paul's letters to constantly whisper that in your ear. We read these words, and this is, isn't it fantastic to have this assurance? But actually, Paul wants us to know why we have this assurance. And so, it's important for us in a passage like this ourselves, we read this and we, we need to come to the Apostle Paul need to come to ourselves and say, this gives me great assurance. And make sure that when the question why is asked, it, we're not like a balloon that's just been punctured and we, and we say, well, it gives me great assurance because it gives me great assurance. And I, I don't really know why it gives me great assurance, but it really sounds terrific. And the confidence Paul has gives me confidence. At the end of the day paul 's confidence might be a great model to me, but it 's not going to be much use to me when, for example i 'm facing the kind of things that Paul says he himself and his fellow believers have faced and so I want us to look at the question why today? why is it that the gospel gives Christians this tremendous assurance and great confidence in the face of difficulties and, and uh, persecution and suffering, things that we don't understand. If we're going to be helped to understand what Paul is doing here, uh, I think we notice, need to notice a couple of things um, that I know in my own reading of the, the book of Romans, I, I sometimes pass over. The first is, at this point in the letter, Paul is actually reflecting on a passage in the Old Testament. And the language he uses makes it very clear that that when when he's asking this question, uh, then, then what opposition can ever stand against us? He's beginning to reflect on an Old Testament passage, Isaiah chapter 50, in which Isaiah is looking over the horizon of history to see the coming of the Lord Jesus. And he sees the Lord Jesus, he calls Him the servant of the Lord, coming over the horizon and facing opposition and saying the very kind of things that Paul says here at the end of Romans 8. The language is is an echo, it's a clear echo of words that are put into the mouth of the Lord Jesus. He has been here before. He can show us the way. And it's a very interesting thing as you, as you read through Romans 5, 6, 7, and 8, which are all about Christian assurance and the hope of glory that Paul keeps saying to us, he does it in verse 11 of chapter 5, verse 21 of chapter 5, verse 23 of chapter 6, verse 25 of chapter 7, and verse 39 of chapter 8. There is a chorus, a refrain that runs through all he says, where he says, now all this is true in Jesus Christ our Lord. In other words, he is saying, this confidence is not rooted in anything in myself. This confidence is not even rooted in the level of my faith. This confidence is rooted in the Lord Jesus Christ and is mine only because even the weakest faith, as our forefathers often said, even the weakest faith Gets the same strong Christ as the strongest faith. And so there is a sense in which anyone hearing these words who was familiar with the prophecy of Isaiah would immediately realize oh, I I see what he's doing. He's saying the things Jesus said because he knows these things are true of him because he belongs to Jesus. But there's another note that's struck in these verses that I think is particularly illuminating. You notice as Paul speaks here, and as he challenges the universe to destroy his faith, he asks a series of four questions. And each of these questions, interestingly, begins with the interrogative pronoun, who? Now. You notice, for example, in verse 28 he says, we know that in everything God works for good. In verse 31 he says, what then shall we say to these things? But do you notice in the middle of verse 31 the form of the question changes? If God is for us, who can be against us? In verse 33 who will bring any charge against those God has chosen? In verse 34, who is he that condemns? In verse 35, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? And my question is, well, who is this who? Why does Paul not just say, what can do this? what can do this? That that would have made perfect sense. Uh, It would have been perfectly accurate. It would have given us great confidence if we had followed through his gospel logic. But don't you think it's striking that when he's been saying what and what, that with this enormous consistency just in these verses, he changes the form of the pronoun, the form of the interrogative pronoun, and it becomes personal. So, who is this who? And at the end of the day, whoever might be the human instrument, I have no doubt that at the back of his mind, partly because he sees it in the Old Testament prophecy, because he saw it in the life of Jesus as he wore the armor of God and lived this life of confident faith in the heavenly Father, that the who he is referring to is actually the evil one, Satan, the one who is described, for example, by the apostle Peter as the adversary, the one who is described by the gospel as the enemy the one who stands behind so much that happens in the life of the Christian in order to destroy the Christian sense of assurance, confidence, and joy in the gospel. Satan knows, as Paul knows, that nothing can destroy our salvation. He makes that very clear. Absolutely nothing can destroy the salvation of God's people. But he also recognizes that there is someone, knowing that, who seeks to destroy the Christian's joy in that salvation, assurance in that salvation, confidence in that salvation, pleasure in that salvation. And that's fairly evident, isn't it? The gospel offers us so much, gives us such assurance, and yet so often in the Christian life and in the lives of some Christians in particular who, who seem to be almost prone in this particular area to the way in which the evil one seeks to destroy their quiet confidence in the gospel. One of several things Paul is doing here is this. He's showing us how to deal with the way in which this who, the evil one, sometimes maliciously and in a sinister and hidden way, destroys the pleasure we have in being the children of God. And he's really making four affirmations. The first affirmation is this, that the gospel of Jesus Christ is sufficient to assure us in the face of all opposition. There is no opposition that can ever destroy our confidence in the gospel. And you notice how he puts it in verse 31 and 32. What shall we say in response to this? If God is for us, who can be against us? Now, notice the language he's not saying, he's not saying if God is for us, nobody is against us. That would be head in the sand, wouldn't it? In fact, the truth of the matter is, if God is for us, people are likely to be against us. That's the teaching of the rest of the New Testament. Now, what he's saying is, look, at the end of the day, if God is for us, at the end of the day, nothing ultimately can stand against us. Actually he would given us a hint of this. He said the reason is because God is working even in the things and the people who seem to be against us in order to fulfill His own purposes. It's like the Christian lives within the context of Joseph's words. They meant it for evil, but God employs even that evil for His own glorious purposes. So, he's saying God works everything together for the good of those who love Him, who are called according to His purposes. So, who can be against us? But the question is, yeah, if God is for me, I understand nobody can ultimately be against me. Nothing can ultimately destroy the purposes of God who is for me. But the big question is this. How do I know God is for me? Isn't it? I mean, perhaps life is fine and it's, you know, it's obvious God is for me. But for many Christians in the world, for some of us, life is not fine. We might even say in 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 an open moment, life seems to be against me. So, how do I know God isn't against me? And in actual fact, that is for some Christians the default, isn't it? Things go badly wrong. Your aspirations turn into sand, and your first thought is, why is God against me? At least you've learned one lesson. You can't be absolutely sure that God is for you just because life is going smoothly nor can you be sure God is for you, because you happen to have a sense of peace. Multitudes of complete unbelievers, my friends, can have a sense of peace. So, how do I know? Where do I need to look to be able to say, because of this, when I hear the, the little voice saying, why is it you can be sure God is for you, when all this is happening? Paul gives us the answer. We don't look in here. We don't look out there. He says we know this is true because this God gave His only Son for us. And if He's given His Son for us, follow the logic He's saying. If He's given His Son for us, He will stop at nothing to secure us. The answer the answer is how we think about Christ. The answer is that we understand that God, in a sense, has, He has given everything He has. You know, imagine, imagine you had come to church this morning and you're, you know, you, you, you've been brought up always to put something in the offering. You don't like this giving the check or, you know, taking out a direct debit. You, you've been brought up to put something in the offering. You come right to the church door. Suddenly you remember. You forgot those hundred-pound notes that you had left on the kitchen. What do you do? I said, I can't possibly go to church. You say to your wife, we can't possibly go to church. I've left the offering. And your wife says, you don't be such a dumbhead. If we've come this far, it's a small thing that the money's still on the kitchen table that's the kind of argument that Paul is using. He's saying, if he's gone this length for you, giving his son for you, don't be such a dumbhead as to let anyone persuade you that he isn't really for you. So, he's saying in order to enjoy this confidence that the gospel is sufficient in the face of all opposition, we need to keep our eyes fixed on understanding what it is that God did when his son died for us on the cross, it was a guarantee to us that nothing will ever be able to take us away from him, no opposition. But then you notice he goes on and he asks another question in verse 33. If the gospel is sufficient in the face of all opposition, now he wants to say the gospel is also sufficient in the face of all accusation who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? Now, he's not thinking here of uh, criminal charges, civil charges being brought against Christians because they are Christians. He's he's thinking about charges of guilt. And for Paul, and by and large for the New Testament, charges of exposure of guilt and sin may be the ministry of the Holy Spirit but when the Christian is charged with guilt, the source of that charge tends to be Satan, doesn't it? He is, as, as marvelous passage in the book of Revelation that pictures all this, Satan is the great red dragon not able to destroy Christ. What does he do? He goes off in pursuit of those who belong to Christ, and what does he do? He becomes, says John, the accuser of the brothers. He brings charges against the brothers in order to make them feel conscious of their guilt, conscious of their sin, and uh, then to draw the false conclusion that if there is sin like this in my life, it, it isn't possible that I'll be able to last. It isn't possible that God still loves me The great illustration of this in the Old Testament, of course, in Zechariah chapter 3, isn't it? Joshua the high priest standing before God and Satan pointing to the filth and the sin in his life. And uh, the Lord commands him to be covered in new robes so that none of these accusations can stick to him. And that's the gospel, isn't it? That's that's one of the reasons why, to myself, I keep saying, and to others, I keep wanting to say, we need to understand that if we have been justified in Christ, we are as righteous in the sight of His Father as He Himself is. Because the robes we wear are the robes of His righteousness. And so, there is no accusation of the evil one that can possibly stand. You remember how John Newton puts this so beautifully, doesn't he, in Approach My Soul, the mercy seat where Jesus answers prayer. They are humbly fall before His feet, for none can perish there. I sometimes wonder if he was thinking about his poor friend, William Cooper, who was driven at times demented, by these accusations that he wasn't fit for God. And then Newton goes on to say this, be thou my shield and hiding place that sheltered near thy side, I may my fierce accuser face and tell him Christ has died. And nothing can stick because I'm hidden in Jesus Christ. So, he wants to assure us that there is no opposition that can stand against the gospel. There is no accusation that can penetrate the gospel. And then he wants to say the gospel is, in the third place, sufficient to guard us from all condemnation. This is very interesting, isn't it? He deals with accusation of guilt and and unworthiness. but, But then he He speaks about… why this order? Why condemnation? I mean, you would think, wouldn't you, if I know that no accusation can stick against those who are in Christ, why does He even bother raising the question of condemnation? You see what I'm saying? If I know no accusation can stand against me, then any question of condemnation seems absolutely irrelevant. Well, it seems that way, doesn't it? Actually, the language Paul uses here is the same language used in romans chapter eight uh, verse one there 's no condemnation for those who are in christ jesus and, and it 's it's got the atmosphere of the prison cell in it and I think what Paul is addressing here is something i 've noticed numbers of Christians experience they know. They are justified by faith in Jesus Christ, and yet they still feel condemned. You know, you, you, may, you may think, well, anyone who understands the gospel would never experience that. Well, wait till you're 45 or 60, and I've hung around all kinds of Christians, and you'll discover there's actually, there's actually an amazing number of Christians experience this. They understand that the gospel teaches us, nothing in my hand I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. Jesus has done it all. I'm justified by faith and not by any of my own contribution. Understand all that, and have come to Christ. And then, as they go on in their Christian lives, and you can see again why Paul uses the personal interrogative pronoun, who. They, They know all this. And yet, they still feel condemned. And, and then they begin to condemn themselves. John, the Apostle John, he knows that. He says, when our hearts condemn us, uh, we need to know that God is greater than our hearts. And, and perhaps that's uh, the kind of experience that, that you've gone through. Often enough, actually, one of the good things about this is it says to you, this isn't a new thing you're not the first person, and you're not alone. This is an extraordinarily common experience among Christians, which is why, as I say often for Christians, you know, something goes wrong, or or they stumble, and their first instinct is is to feel profoundly condemned. And in their experience, they, they kind of end up back in the prison house, don't they? They they can never fully enjoy their salvation because it's not the voice of the child that says, why? It's, It's a sinister voice that says, look at you. You're condemned. And you know it so well, you're condemning yourself. Well, how does the gospel deal with this? Again, there's a beautiful illustration, isn't there? In the Gospels, Simon Peter fails the Lord Jesus, and and he he condemns himself, and you remember how Jesus said to him, Peter, when that happens, remember this, that I have prayed for you, that your faith will not fail. And That's exactly the answer Paul gives, isn't it? He says, who is he who condemns? Christ Jesus has died for us. He won't condemn us. He's been raised to life for us. And then he adds this. Not only is that true, but he is at the right hand of God interceding for us. Now, I don't think the New Testament makes all that clear what that means, but what it does mean is this that He is there. And when I, when I feel this condemnation, what do I need to do? I need to raise my eyes now to where He is and to think in the very presence of the Heavenly Father, who is the only one who can ultimately condemn me. Whether I condemn myself or not is, is a matter of indifference. I am a poor judge of myself but there at the right hand of the Father I see Jesus Christ, and I know He is there making intercession for me. The the hymn that nowadays people like to sing to a modern sovereign grace tune, I think it is, and often don't know it's actually an old hymn, before the throne of God above. When Satan tempts me to despair, and tells me of the wrong within. Upward I look and see him there who made an end of all my sin. Because my sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. You see, no condemnation. And God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. And here's the great thing the New Testament tells us the Father always hears Him. You know, when you feel that condemnation, you, you think to yourself that, this, that these, these voices to which I had my own voice, so strong, so loud, I don't even know whether God can hear me. Yeah, but there's something more important than God hearing you, and that's God hearing Him. And the Scripture tells us, the Father always hears His Son. And so, this great confidence, we can be sure that the gospel is sufficient to enable us to face all opposition. The gospel is sufficient to silence all accusation. The gospel is sufficient to guard us from all condemnation. And this is why the gospel is also, as he says at the end of this passage sufficient to guarantee that there will never be any separation. And he there's another very interesting thing. He, kind of, he lists every possible category in which he thinks there might be power to separate a Christian believer from the love of God in Jesus Christ. And he tells us this is impossible because God's power is absolutely perfect in all things He works for the good of those who love Him. Verse 28, His plan for us is perfect. And this explains so much, doesn't it? Verse 29, those God foreknew, He also predestined. Now, just, you know, calm your mind if those words stimulate excitement in you. And ask yourself, what does He foreknow us for, and what does He predestine us to? Answer, to be conformed to the image of His Son, that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. Now, listen, if He's conforming you to the likeness of His Son, then your experience is going to be like His Son. It's not going to be a bed of roses and comfortable clouds that will bring you to heaven. And if He's conforming you to His Son, then the apostle is saying all of these things that seem to have the potential to separate you in the hands of the heavenly Father become instruments by which He transforms you and shapes you and cuts off the rough edges and, and brings you to a new sense of dependence and to a greater sense of the power and glory and grace of Jesus Christ. And we can be sure that his purposes are absolutely perfect. His power is perfect. His plan is perfect. His purposes are perfect. Those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. Here's another hymn you need to know by Augustus Montague Toplady. I remember seeing that name when I could read in the hymn book, Augustus Montague Top. There's a name to die for. And he is this marvelous hymn that reflects these verses in Romans 8. A debtor to mercy alone, of covenant mercy I sing. Nor fear with thy righteousness on, my person and offering to bring. And the last verse goes like this. My name from the palms of His hands, eternity will not erase. Inscribed on His heart, it remains in marks of indelible grace. Those of you who know indelible grace songs, that's where they got it from, Augustus, Montague, top lady. And then He says this, yes, I to the end shall endure as sure as the earnest is given. And the last line, listen to this, believe this. More happy, but not more secure, the glorified spirits in heaven. Why are they secure in heaven? Is it because they're in heaven? Well, maybe. They're secure because Christ secures them. And how are you secure? You are secure. Because Christ secures you. So, yes, it's true. We're not as happy as they are. That doesn't mean we're miserable. More happy. But we're happy because they are not more secure than we are. Christ, who secures them in glory, secures us for glory. And uh, so the, the question is do, do I know anything of this? Or am, am, I, still, am I still at the stage of spiritual experience where I'm trying to build this up in myself? So easy, isn't it? If I just, you know, if I if I if I'm if I'm just a better Christian or or if I do better, I'll feel more secure. My friends, that's sinking sand. You're you're looking to the wrong security. You need to look to Jesus Christ. Can it be that you're a Christian who sometimes, perhaps even often, senses these accusations, this condemnation, and, uh, and you're driven into yourself, and you need to be driven out of yourself to the Lord Jesus and up from earth to heaven to see Him standing there making intercession for me. As Hebrew says, He is able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through Him because He ever lives to make intercession for them. And so, it really is true, more happy, but never, ever, ever more secure, the glorified spirits in heaven. You're enjoying that security in the midst of the the gleams of gospel grace and the doubts of the clouds of life. Uh, You can know that, and He wants you to know that. You, You don't think He doesn't want you to know that, do you? You don't think He would be a father who didn't want you to know that you were secure in His presence. What kind of father would that be? If you were a father, you want your children to know they're secure. How much more the Father who has given His Son in order to bring us home. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, again we thank You for the Word of the Gospel and for its grace and power. We pray You would lift our eyes to The Lord Jesus, we we pray you would put your hand under some of our chins because we so often find ourselves drooping and looking inwards and downwards. And we pray that you would gently force our chins up and our eyes heavenward, that we may see him who is the assurance to us that you will never, ever leave us and never forsake us and that you will bring us all the way home because you have given your Son for us. And we pray this blessing in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee. If you found this sermon has been helpful to you, please help us to continue building up and assisting the people of God. Visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk For information and training on persuasive evangelism and how to share your faith biblically, please visit the website of Solace, the Centre for Public Christianity at solace-cpc.org Once again, that website address is S-O-L-A-S-cpc.